Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we introduce uh, successful entrepreneurs and interview them and bring you successful or tips on how to grow your business. Uh, today, we have Rand Fishkin, who is the CEO and founder of Moz, which is inbound marketing software that helps you grow your business online. And he is also a well-known speaker in the internet marketing space. And he is also the co-founder of inbound.org, where you can get the latest internet marketing news. How are you doing today, Rand? A little under the weather, but I'm sure I'll recover soon. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah. Hope you get better soon. So Thanks. great. Um, you know, I want to dive right into this right here. Um, in 2012, you know, Moz was doing really well. You know, you guys did 18 million in revenue, uh, 16,000 customers, um, according to the blog post that I read. Um, so how are think, things going uh, today? Yeah, let's see. In 2012, we did 21.9 million in revenue. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think we ended the year right about 19,000 customers. Got it. Okay. And how are things looking today? Um, so we're on track to do maybe between 29 and 30 million this year. And we've got about 20, 22,000 paying subscribers right now. Got it. Okay, cool. Do you want to give our audience uh, like a quick like two or three sentence uh, overview of what Moz does exactly? Sure. So we make, uh, we make software primarily for professional web marketers, both in-house or consultant and agency marketers, uh, to help them measure and improve inbound channels like SEO, social media, content marketing, um, branded mentions, links, those kinds of things. Got it. Okay. Perfect. So, you know, a few years ago, you guys made a jump from, you know, doing consulting, like online marketing consulting, and you decided to go more towards like a product focus. Um, what was kind of the aha moment that, you know, where you figured out you know, that product is the right way to go and to move away from consulting? Gosh, uh, that was in late 2007 when, so this is many years ago now, but uh, late 2007 when we saw that our uh, subscription revenue from you know, this new sort of uh, very basic suite of software tools that we've been offering was going to eclipse our consulting revenue for the year uh, you know, in the first nine months that it had been out, and that sort of a, a wake-up call. I think I think software might be something that we're better at um, and a better path for us. Got it. And for the consulting, like at the peak, how much were you guys doing in revenue? Gosh, I think our biggest year of consulting. Well, we sort of had two. We had, we had there's an interesting story there. In 2006, I think we did about 600,000, 500,000. Uh, in consulting revenue, but in 2009, we actually, at the end of 2008, you know, it was the financial crisis, the board met, um, and there was kind of that, I don't know if you remember, but there was that Sequoia memo out, right? And the Sequoia yeah. memo was like, you know, you, everyone's going to die, RIP good times, um, all the startups are going to hell, technology sector is going to be screwed, which didn't actually happen, of course, but uh, that led us to make the decision to ramp up consulting, even though we, would, we had been about to shut it down completely. Mm. And so we hired a full-time uh, consulting manager, grew that team to a couple people, uh, and did a million dollars, just about a million dollars, in consulting revenue in 2009. And by November of 2009, it was clear that our software was doing fantastic and taking off, mm. and the market was not soft, and so uh, we actually shut it down entirely, gave that, um, we uh, handed off our consulting business 
to a company called Distilled, which had offices in the UK. They opened a Seattle office, and by uh, December of or by January of 2010, we had no more consulting. Got it. So, is there like a certain point where you decided, okay, you know, we're doing X amount in revenue for software? Um, you know, what like what was like the one defining moment where it's like, okay, we need to move over now. Let's just shut down consulting. Um. Well, so like I said, there's kind of two of those. One in 2007, and one and again in 2009 when we ramped it back up and then shut it back down again. Um, yeah, the you know one of the big takeaways for me is that I wish we had been I wish we had been more uh, we had stuck to our guns more and not decided in late 2008, not been spooked by the market into starting back up into consulting, uh, because I think it actually has created a beast that's been very hard to get away from. So even though it's been four years since we had any consulting revenue on our books, tons of people still think of Moz as consultants. Right. And that's, that's really dangerous, it's really bad. In fact, it, it creates a lot of bad market impressions, it creates a lot of bad investor perception. Um, you want your brand to be associated with one thing, mm -hmm. and for people to be very confident that they know exactly what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that story has been hard for us to tell mm -hmm. over the last four or five years, um, just because we didn't, you know, I think make that uh, uh, initial decision to shut it down. And I think the other thing we could have done that would have been smart is probably to change our name from SEO Moz to Moz mm -hmm. back in 2007 when we did software. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and stuck with that name throughout so that people wouldn't have the association of the consultancy with uh, the SEOMOS brand name. Got it. So the key takeaway here is, you know, when you're doing something like this, you know, for entrepreneurs, it's to focus, right? You want to focus and not kind of, you know, distribute it where you're not exactly sure what you want to do, right? Absolutely. My God, I mean, especially if you're building a, a brand. And this is, you know, for B2B folks who are doing more enterprise-style sales, less of a concern, right, because the relationships are very one-to-one. -one. If you're pivoting and changing and offering new things, that is hard. If you're doing something like we're doing, uh, which is technically B2B, but in a very B2C fashion, right, with tens of thousands of subscribers, uh, hundreds of people taking a new free trial every day, um, you know, massive millions of visits to the website, and, and we have pretty much a, a consumer-style brand in the marketing world. It, it's deadly. It's deadly to have multiple associations with your brand and have brand confusion. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, um, something that, that the experts in the B2C marketing world learn early on. And then the other thing that's really hard is just that, uh, that hedgehog concept, right, that Jim Collins describes. Right. You want to be able to have that focus to get that singular flywheel going mm -hmm. and to keep pushing on that. You, you generally will see much better returns mm -hmm. uh, continuing on the same track than kind of being diverted in 50 different directions. Got it. Cool. So you just mentioned a flywheel. Can you explain to our audience what the flywheel is exactly? Sure, yeah. So for, for me, when I think about a flywheel, the, the idea is that it takes a massive amount of energy, right? It's this industrial contraption that's, that's designed to uh, generate electricity, generally used in electrical plants. And the idea is that it, it is very tough to get a flywheel started because it's extremely heavy, it's slow moving, it's a massive contraption. But even though that first quarter of a turn, quarter of a cycle around the wheel, takes you know, an incredible amount of energy, the next quarter of a cycle takes a little bit less. Still an incredible amount of energy, but a little bit less. And then 
as you get that first cycle of the wheel going, it gets easier to push on. And the faster it gets going, easier it is to push, the easier it is to make a new revolution. And this is a great analogy for the way uh, technology startups work because in your first few months, right, in your first year, developing something incredibly hard, but once you have a product launched, iterating on that product becomes easier. You learn lessons about the technology and the software engineering behind it, the architecture and infrastructure needed. You learn things about how your customers are using it. You learn things about marketing to them. You learn things about which channels work for you and don't. And as you have all those learnings, you're able to apply them and make the flywheel of your business turn faster and faster. You're trying to find that flywheel effect in everything that you do. So, you know, for folks who, um, if you're looking at a business line that has uh, an investment that is non-flywheel, essentially it takes just as much energy and effort to do this thing the second time as it did the first time and the tenth time as it did the first and second time. That's not a win. Like, that's not scalability. And that's not, that's not leveraging your, uh, your strengths in finding a flywheel. What you want to do is find things where that tenth turn is ten times easier than that first turn. And the second turn was only you know, half as hard as the first turn. That's, that's what you're seeking. And that's why um, I'm such a big proponent of, of inbound marketing channels in general. Got it. So would you say your blog, the SEO Moz blog, is the perfect example of the flywheel in action? Gosh, I don't know about the perfect, but it is a, a decent example for sure, right? So the, um, you know, the first few hundred blog posts I wrote, those were eh, of mediocre quality and they didn't generate a huge audience, but even after that, those first few, it got a little bit easier, I got a little bit better at it, I learned what the audience wanted, I was getting more and more visits, and as that content grew out, right, of course all of that's getting indexed in search engines, it's generating more traffic, Those that traffic is getting links back to the blog, that's making it earn more and more visits, so it really is generating a flywheel, that's the beauty behind content marketing in general, and a blog specifically. Got it. So how important would you say the blog is, you know, for, let's say, how important has a blog been for Moz's success, and how long would you say it took to get to that level of success, or what you consider to be success? Uh, that was, gosh, I would say it's been instrumental, maybe even fundamental to our success, because uh, we, we are really a business that was built on the back of the blog, right? So the blog had started, I started the blog in 2003. By 2007, it already had about 10,000 visits a day, and because that audience was the folks who we eventually were building software for, it, it was a fantastic market research and testing tool, it was a great brand building tool, it was a great audience development tool, a great marketing channel, it just turned into all of these great things, but it really, it didn't start that way, right? It started as, I just want to share my knowledge with the world, let's see who's interested, let's see if this can generate valuable discussion, and then as it did, that turned into a, hey, we should really leverage this opportunity and build something that these people want. So I'm kind of a fan nowadays of you know, the, the blog first strategy. Um, and you can see there's, there's a few blog posts up on the web now. Um, I think uh, William Mogar, who runs uh, Startup Management, put together a great post kind of listing businesses that have all started on blogs first. And uh, that's really cool to see. That's a good post. Um, so what would you say to you know people that are in really small niches? Let's say I sell plungers or a really niche product. What would you say to these people that want to get started with content marketing, with blogging, but they say, 
oh, I can't do it because my product is too big. What do you say to these people? Um, so there's two things. Number one, if you're trying to build a very scalable business, right, one that's going to go far and wide, that's going to get going to build a a, a national or a global brand, then I think investing in content marketing probably has, you know, at a high level has uh, eventual high rates of return. And it doesn't matter how small your niche is, uh, so long as there's a big market, content marketing will make sense. If you're talking about small local businesses, right, so someone who's like, hey, I, I sell plungers, I sell them in Cleveland, Ohio, I don't really have designs to take over the rest of Ohio and eventually build this national brand. Well, fine. Then content marketing, content marketing for you might be a piece of content a year. One great thing that attracts some attention to your brand that people are going to come back to and say, oh yeah, you know, that's a really great resource because he listed, you know, maybe um, uh, think of common problems that people who are buying plungers might have, and those might be uh, primarily, you know, if you're if you're selling plungers, you're probably not selling them to consumers. You're probably selling them mostly to suppliers. And so you might say that the big thing that these suppliers need is they need a list of great uh, independent, locally sourced um, uh, creators of all sorts of goods in the home improvement and repair sector. So I'm going to make that. I'm going to make the Ohio small business, the Ohio guide to sourcing locally. And it's going to have you know all, all of these great things. And all those suppliers are going to go like, man, what a great resource. I'm going to come back to that again and again and again because I love buying locally. I love supporting Ohio businesses. Fantastic. You don't need to be blogging every day. You just need to build it once. Right? So that's the, that's the kind of content marketing that I encourage for small local business. That's a really good example. And that actually brings me to my next question where, you know, you know Moz has done a lot of these guides, right? You know, the beginner's guide to SEO and all these different things that are super helpful to people that are just, you know, starting to learn, like, you know, inbound marketing and things like that. Um, you know, how long did it take to you know produce things like this, and how important would you say you know these little um, these little guides were for um, the success for Moz? Yeah, so we do we do two right. We do really two kinds of content. We do big content, which would be things like um, Mozcast or the Google algorithm history or the uh, beginner's guide to SEO or the you know the one that uh, was released last night this morning, the um, web developers cheat sheet SEO cheat sheet. Those types of things tend to take between uh, several weeks to a couple months to develop, build, launch, and they take multiple team members, someone from design and UI, uh, someone on the content side, proofreaders, uh, contributions from industry folks, all that kind of stuff. So they're intense. They really are. But the return is clearly worthwhile. Um, I shared a blog post on Twitter the other day called Why is Big Content Worthwhile? And you can see some of the statistics around measuring Kind of how the blog and you must perform against these big content pieces. And I would urge anyone who's very serious in the content marketing world to make a considered decision around is blogging every day the right move, or should I be spending two, three, four weeks investing in one project that's going to have you know 10, 20 times the return of the best blog post I'll write all year? Huh, interesting. I'll have to look for that one. So, you know, how do you um for, for entrepreneurs that want to create this kind of, you know, I'll call, call it cornerstone content, you know, how would you say you know they would go about finding like the right people to create this content? Do you have any tips? I, I tend to think, you know, if you're a small team, small startup team, it tends to be the people on that team, right? It's the it's the founder. It might be, you know, if you have a marketer or a designer, 
um, or a, a developer, an engineer, right, who's coming, who has like a great idea of, hey, you know, what would be incredibly useful to the audience we want to reach, this thing, and not just incredibly useful, but also something that um, is likely to inspire sharing, right? So, you know, there's there's lots of folks who build something that's very very useful, um, but when you know a particular segment of the market sees it. A, they're not the type of people who are on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and you know Google Plus, and they're not doing all these broad kinds of sharing. They don't have blogs of themselves. They don't have megaphones, and so they're less likely to share. And they might see this resource and think, "Oh man, I hope nobody else finds this because it's a great competitive advantage for me to have it right. and nobody else to have it." That's less of what you're looking for. More of what you're looking for is, "Hey, here's something that is." massively useful or interesting and fascinating that lots of people who have those megaphones will share and they won't be the kinds of things where they say, hey, it's a competitive advantage for me to be the only person who has this. Right? I'll look good. It's more valuable for me to share because I'll look good to my audience and I'll earn more of a following if I share this piece of content. Got it. So it sounds like you know, promotion is obviously a big part of content marketing too. Um, if you were to produce like a big piece of content, what percentage would you say is you know, um, you know, important to create a good piece of content? What percentage would you say is you know the promotion part? Like how how would you like kind of split? Yeah, part? yeah. Um, it really depends. If you already have a built-in audience, uh, it's generally 80-20. 80% is the what did you build and how great is it. Um, and 20% is the, you know, how do you do the amplification of it. If you don't yet have an audience, that sort of flips on its head, right? It's, it's 20% uh, uh, what you build and 80% can you start getting that flywheel going, going of building that audience. That doesn't mean, I don't mean by 20% that you should invest less in the content and invest less in making something remarkable. I just mean don't expect that you know, hey, I just made the best resource of its kind on the web by a mile. It's so much better than what you know this other big company has done. And then I go and share it, and I don't get much attention. I don't get much energy. Don't attribute that to the quality. Attribute that to I don't have much of a megaphone yet. You know, I need to work on my megaphone. And working on your megaphone is is very akin to all of the best practices for sort of SEO and social media, right? That's a those are the, the primary channels. And email marketing, if you're doing a lot of uh, email sharing, but those channels are the primary ones by which your content will be amplified. Got it. Yeah, and if you guys are wondering, uh, there's a lot of great posts on Waz about outreach, uh, you know, kind of building that, that megaphone, building that audience. Um, I would recommend you guys doing something or the stuff on there. Um, cool. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was um, kind of the culture at Moz, you know, tag. How important yeah. has that been, and how did you come up with those, you know, those six specific uh, traits? I guess. Yeah. So this was back in, gosh, I think 2007. Again, we kind of met as a whole company. Um, decided, you know, we went through this exercise of what are the values that are important to us, and which ones of those are shared. Um, and then we had a, um, a writer actually put together the tag fee guidelines and, um, and and structure that for us, and that's. You know, it's been a fantastic founding document, um, and I believe a, a critical part of not necessarily our success from a financial perspective, but certainly our success from a culture building, team building, um, and you know, making Moz a place where people want to come and work. 
certainly a place where I want to go into work every day. Cool. And what are those six traits? Uh, so tactic is transparency, authenticity, generosity, fun, empathy, uh, and being the exception. Got it. Those are all really good. I, mean, I feel like talking those for ours. But um, I guess that brings me to my next point. You know, there's a lot of different companies that have their cultures, you know, their core values posted. Um, and the tendency is, or it can be sometimes, where other founders just want to copy you know, what's written there. How do you guys come up with um, these? Do you guys like have the management team get together, or is it you coming up with most of these traits? What is it exactly? Uh, you know, so like I said, this was back when there was only six people on our team. And we created Taffy. It actually hasn't changed in you know the last uh, six years, right? So it's it's stayed a very um, uh, permanent document, and I, I would suspect that it will continue to be that way. So values don't really change. I think the things that do change are the ways that you uh, build systems, structure, and process to maintain Taffy, right? And that's very it's very easy when you are ten people. Gets a little harder at 50. Gets a lot harder at 130, which is where we are today. Um, and so there's a you know there's a lot of work going into um, a, a new process. That we're, well, many new processes that we're working on around making tag fee actionable and being accountable to tag fee and to uh, the you know the metrics that we set for ourselves. So I think that you know that work will be a really interesting process, and I I hope to have something more to share about that. Uh, you know, maybe early next year. Yeah, no, that would be great. And would you say you guys hire based on you know, your core values? You guys look at these six things. Like yeah, so core values, the whole idea is that you, you use it in your hiring, you use it in your reviews, and you use it in how the company makes decisions, right? How we choose what to do and what not to do. It's an architecture for uh, all of the big important things that we do. So, you know, it should be a barrier to entry that a person who doesn't inherently reflect tag fee, shouldn't be something that we hire. A, I don't think they're going to be happy here, yep. right? And B, the rest of the team isn't going to be happy with them. And it's just, it's just not a match. Um, and that's not to say that people who aren't tag fee aren't good people, aren't uh, you know plenty wonderful employees for some other company. It's just not a match here. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Um, so I want to dive into kind of like the, the tactics slash growth part from Moz. Um, what would you say are you know, what, what are the, the real big tactics that help push growth for Moz in the early days? Um, well, so we already talked about the blog. Uh, SEO has been a big part of our growth as well, and I think for us, uh, building and maintaining a really measurable funnel, right? From um, you know, we can track people who visit the site, people who get to our product pages, people who take a free trial. How many people do we lose in the free trial before they become paying subscribers? And then what's the churn rate in the, you know, in different cohorts of months and in people who sign up, people who use different tools? So measuring all of those things and having that data um, has been tr tremendously valuable to, uh, you know, informing the kinds of growth tactics that we pursue. Got it. Okay. And you know, a lot of what you guys do is inbound, right? Um, yeah. What percentage would you say is like paid stuff? How much paid acquisition do you guys? Uh, about fifteen percent of our budget, on average, over the last few years, has been spent on paid marketing. Those are channels like uh, paid search, um, you know, display, retargeting, affiliate, social media ads, etc. Uh, this year's actually been a little bit lower, um, but I suspect we'll we're going to ramp up a bit in Q four. We've we've sort of had a 
a very slow four months because we, we kind of shut down our funnel when we launched, uh, when we rebranded from SEO Moz to Moz and launched Moz Analytics in beta. You know, you could sign up for the invite list, but taking a free trial of the old product was kind of a secondary behind the scenes thing. And so we haven't actually been doing much promotion there. Um, and our new product is launching probably in September, and so then uh, publicly in September. And so then we'll kind of ramp up uh, paid spend again. Cool. Can't wait to see that. Uh, so, you know, in the tech startup world, a lot of the investors will be like, okay, it's all about, you know, we'll give you an injection of 5 to 10 million, and let's just go all out of paid acquisition, let's keep the CP level, blah, blah, blah. Ooh. But yeah, like, what do you. You know, obviously, you guys had some struggles with uh, you know, getting investors. So, did they have a lot of pushback to like this inbound marketing methodology? Did they like how do you convince an investor to go with inbound and that's the right way to go long term? Um, no, actually, well, it wasn't our methodology. I think actually our uh, our acquisition uh, strategies and tactics was were fascinating and um, you know clearly of interest to investors. Where we really had challenges. Um, was primarily on our uh, the model that we've got, which is self-service SaaS as opposed to classic enterprise SaaS. So, you know, investors always looked at us and benchmarked us against classic software as a service companies. Those would be, um, you know, think uh, Salesforce or um, uh, you know Oracle or those kinds of things, right? The the metrics that a SaaS company has are really based on. How many salespeople do you have? What's your cost of customer acquisition? Um, and then once you get someone in, what's retention over time and those sorts of things. When you're self-service, it looks really, really different. And so cost of customer acquisition, right? They looked at our cost of customer acquisition, which is uh, on average to acquire a new customer if you take all of our marketing costs, which is primarily staff and a few paid channels. I think um, you know, last time we fundraised, which was 2012, that was like $79 to acquire a new customer. And uh, customer payback period, one month. And so investors looked at that and went, this is crazy. This makes no sense to me. You know, if that's the case, you guys, A, shouldn't need to raise money, and B, you should be, um, you know, you should be acquiring customers with a normal rate, and why aren't you pouring tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of more dollars every month into paid marketing. You want to increase that cost of customer acquisition and just acquire, acquire, acquire. But that's not that's not actually what we want to do. And I, I can explain, you know, there's lots of detail around that, but when you go in with that mindset, it's hard to change. The other thing that they looked at is um, is churn rate. So we gave them, you know, they asked for what's your average monthly churn rate? I think our average monthly churn rate is eight or eight and a half percent. And what investors want to see is two percent. Yep. So, but that actually is hiding a much more complex story. What happens in a self-service model is that in the first three months, uh, churn rates like 16, 17%. Then it drops after month three to around an average of 6%, all the way up to month nine when it drops to like 2%. So what's actually happening is about, you know, between 15 and 20% of the customers that we acquire uh, on a given day turn into long-term customers, nine-plus-month customers with that you know, beautiful 2% or less churn curve. That's great. But investors looked at it and said, hey, you're acquiring all these customers. You're not keeping them. You must not have a good product. Uh, you know, This is a churn and burn kind of game, which isn't the case. right? What we're doing is we're just acquiring a lot of people who a, can't afford us, B, aren't really sophisticated enough to use the product, right. and C, don't you, know, don't know 
what they're doing. And then a lot of people who think of SEO as a one-time activity. Like, well, I'm done SEO on my site. I'll see you guys in a couple of years when we do a redesign. Great. You know, so very kind of different, uh, different metrics, different story there. And so I think Brad Feld, who we pitched at, at Foundry, was really the first investor who was sophisticated enough to understand the model. You know, he looked at our numbers and was like, you guys don't have a churn problem. You have a problem describing your churn. Like, this is a marketing problem, not an institutional numbers problem. He's like, you've got a fantastic business. Look at this. If you, you know, what you're really doing is acquiring these people at an incredibly low cost. The people who do churn out are still profitable for you. Like, you're crazy. All these investors who looked at you are also crazy. You know, here's, here's how you should be viewing the business. And so since then, I think we've gotten much more intelligent, sophisticated, and we've actually been able to work on some churn uh, since his investment, too. So it's been good. Got it. No, that's a really fantastic story. And so if you guys aren't, you know, dumping all that VC money into acquisition, where is it going? Um, so most, so let's see, we had uh, about $20 million in the bank right after Brad's investment uh, in April of last year. And I think we've got about nine left today. And the vast majority of that has gone to three things. Uh, oh, four things, sorry. Uh, three acquisitions. We acquired three companies. Get Listed, which is uh, does you know local sort of SEO helps local small businesses with SEO. That's going to be a new product line for us, um, probably the end of this year. Uh, Follower Walk, which does you know Twitter analytics and details. Follower Walk is just a fantastic product. Lots of people who use Moz already were using Follower Walk, so we just said, hey, you know what? Now it's part of your subscription. You pay for Moz, you get Follower Walk for free. Um, and, and that's been awesome. And, and Peter Bray, who's the founder of Follower Walk, is kind of a, a rogue genius. It's, uh, it's very cool having him on the team. And then um, we've, we also acquired AudienceWise, which is a, a consulting firm that had some uh, software. We primarily acquired them for talent. And uh, Matt and Tim have been you know, instrumental to kind of uh, the growth and success of, uh, of Moz over the last nine months. Uh, and then the fourth thing is we built several new data centers, one in uh, Tukwila, which is near Seattle, one in uh, Texas, and one in Virginia, um, so that we can move off of Amazon's cloud, have redundancy across our own data centers. Um, and we realized that by building these, which is a big upfront investment, I think uh, nearly $5 million of upfront investment, but for that we can actually, um, whatchamacallit, save money, save a considerable amount of money, like many hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, and get a payback in you know six to twelve months uh, from running our own private data center as opposed to using AWS. Um, and then actually, there's a fifth thing, which is we've hired a ton. So we, when uh, April of last year, we were about sixty people. Today, we're about one hundred and thirty. Wow. Okay. And is the you guys have an office in Seattle and like one in Portland? That's right. Yeah. So get listed, follower walk, and uh, audience wise, all turned out to be in Portland, Oregon. And so uh, opening a small office there made a lot of sense. Awesome. So in 2007, how many employees do you guys have? Six. Six. And that's all the way up to 130 now in 2013. So phenomenal. Yeah, well, six years is a lifetime in startup land. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So um, I'm going to go through kind of what I call the speed round right here. I'm going to ask you some quick questions um, and we can wrap things up. So um, what would you say are some companies right now that are kind of chilling it with inbound marketing? Hmm. Gosh, I've seen a number of good ones, but um, 
you know, I actually have a few examples right here. Let me just uh, hold them up for you. I maintain lists and then I have like, you know, pictures of them and all that kind of stuff. I'm always, always impressed when people do a good job with that. So let's see. Uh, Full Contact is doing a great job. Another foundry portfolio company. Um, and that's Brad Fell's uh, portfolio company. Yeah. That's uh, one of his investments. Very early stage startup and in the travel space, Maptia, um, who I think is just on the verge of launching their product. They've, they've been doing a really good job. Uh, I've seen some impressive examples from Shutterstock, which is the stock images company, uh, Minted, which is a greeting card company, um, and actually it's sort of a design of all kinds, all things company based uh, down in San Francisco. Great startup. Uh, they've been doing a good job. Uber. I mean, Uber's been doing a wonderful job of uh, both paid and in non-marketing. Um, but you know, I think their their virality, but combined with content that they do, promotions that they do, they're, they're an incredibly generous company. Um, yeah, and and their social media is second to none. Um, Beta Brand doing a lot of cool things with their products, with their website, um, with SEO actually. Uh, Mailchimp's been doing a terrific job. Um, in the recipe space, Serious Eats, they're a good one too. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Well, this is a really phenomenal list, and I'll make sure list this in the blog post. Thanks for that. Um, what would you say is one must-read book on entrepreneurs to like that? You know, personally, my, I'm always attracted to stories, narratives. And so my, uh, my favorite book, the one that inspired me the most over the years, um, is called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. Oh, that's my favorite book, too. Yeah. It's uh, the story of Chuck Feeney. Yeah. Good book. I, I, I give that two thumbs up. <laughs> cool. And how about you know a must-use productivity tool? Huh. Um, I don't actually use any specific productivity tools, but I am addicted to uh, Inbox Zero philosophy okay. with Gmail. So I try and keep everything simple. If it doesn't exist in my email or my calendar, it never existed. It doesn't. It's not on my in my life at all. And so that way, I never have to go to multiple places to worry about what I'm doing. I always have those two um, kind of reliable systems. And hey, if it's not there, well, never gets done. That's a good philosophy. I like that. I should try that too. Um, you know, there's also one thing that you, I think there's very few entrepreneurs that do this. Like, you know, when I first started in internet marketing, I emailed you, you know, responded immediately. Um, and you've been like on that ever since. So it's, I don't know, it's been like, 2008, 2009, but you know, why why do you respond to every single email? Like, what's what benefit do you get out of it, and why should entrepreneurs do that? Uh, you know, I, I don't actually know whether this is something that you benefit from. Um, this is more a case of me. Uh, so one one of the driving emotions of my life is guilt. Um, I, I always feel guilty. I feel bad about things. I feel like I should do more. Um, you know, and I feel like I'm a disappointment to myself and, and, and to what I should be accomplishing. And so uh, the way that, you know, the reason that I respond to every email is because it always really pissed me off early in my career that I would email people and they would just, you know, brush me off, never reply. Um, and I thought, you know what, if, if my profile ever gets to be larger um, in the space or, you know, I'm running a business like they are, I'm not going to do that. And so that, that's really where it comes from. I, I do think 
you know, I might need to wisen up one of these days and uh, maybe stop replying to every email I get because it does get, it, it gets very challenging, very overwhelming, it's very time consuming, and I don't, and I don't know that there's actually a big return on that investment. Um, but I would feel really guilty if I didn't, so that's why I do it. No, I think it's really admirable, and it's something that I'm definitely trying to strive more towards now. I feel like I'm kind of paying it forward when I do it now, so, you know, yeah. the longer you can do I mean, it. I, I hope for that positive result, too, but there, you know, there's definitely a lot of email that I get and reply to that um, is probably not, a, not an excellent use of my time. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, the kind of the dark days of Boston when you guys first started, you know, having to go into debt, like, how, you know, lowering that big weight, like, how would you, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs have to go through these dark days, so what would be like your big takeaway from that experience? Um, I mean, gosh, uh, you know, I was such a, such a newbie, such a, you know, green one, like, I don't really think, I don't think there's a ton of learning from that experience other than don't do that again, right? And you know, learn something about the field that you're going into before you try it. I didn't do that, right? I didn't try and learn, hey, how do you build a great uh, marketing consultancy? And, oh, let me talk to some people who've done it before. And, you know, let me uh, go spend some time on the web kind of looking around for resources to learn more. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. We just, we just kind of played it by ear and we were idiots about it, right? So, of course, we went into deep, deep debt. Um, you know, today I think most folks who go into the technology startup space are, you know, ten times more wiser and more intelligent. Even if they're, you know, nineteen-year-olds who just dropped out of college, they know not a lot more about the process, what it should look like, what it shouldn't look like, uh, than I did. Got it. Okay. Well, well, I mean, sure, it's a very helpful experience. Um, yeah. Don't be an idiot. Right? <laughs> cool. No, that's that's always good advice. Um, I can follow more too. Um, Final question here. So obviously, you know, the team is really important at Moz. You guys have 130 people. You know, hiring people is probably one of the most important things you can do. Um, you know, what's your criteria when you are hiring people? What do you look for? Yeah, so we have a kind of a, a set number of traits, and, and, and there's a, a few different interview um, systems. So our recruiters focus on, you know, basically do they possess uh, uh, the basic skills and uh, are they kind of a, a cultural and tag team match? And then we'll have, you know, whoever it is, the software engineers, the marketing team, sit down with those folks and go through their own rounds. Um, there's a lot of things that we've found that predict a good, you know, predict a good model. So one of the big ones is humility. If you tend to be the type of person where we ask you, you know, tell me about something very impressive or things that you're very proud of in your career, and you cite things where you worked with a team, and the team accomplished something, and you were really proud of being on that team and proud to help enable the success of that team versus saying, well, you know, I was saddled with a bunch of do-nothing losers, and, you know, I was the hero. That tends to predict someone who's, who's not going to be um, as good a match. And there's a number of, of others like that. But, uh, yeah, I think figuring those out for your own culture can be, and for your own team can be really helpful. Wow, that actually reminds me of that book, uh, Tribal Leadership, that you know, Sony J. gave away for free. You guys can actually download it now. Um, where he talks about people that are kind of level three, where it's like, oh, I'm great. You really want to get to a company where it's level four, where everyone talks about how great the whole team is. Um, yeah. I think that's exactly what you're getting at. 
Um, but Ren, you know, thanks so much for this interview. I think this is, um, you know, really helpful stuff, and I think it's really going to help, uh, you know, entrepreneurs grow their business. So, my pleasure. Thanks, Ren.